Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariash. Thank you for tuning in today. A little bit of housekeeping first before we get started. Be sure to visit our website, b'nabrith.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. Well, I'm joined today by Evan Carmen, B'nai B'rith International's Assistant Director for Aging Policy. In his role at B'nai B'rith, Evan focuses on advocating for seniors, in particular through supporting legislation that expands seniors' access to affordable housing and Medicare. In this interview, Evan and I will be discussing the tax bill recently passed by Congress and its consequences for seniors, especially with regard to Medicare and Medicaid. Evan, thank you for joining us today. Sure. I'd like to talk about the tax reform legislation, but first give us a quick background on how exactly Benebrith International fits into a conversation about senior advocacy. Yeah, so at the at Benebrith International, we have the Center for Senior Services, where we, where we sponsor Section 202, Section 202 buildings with um, the, the federal government, the Department of Housing and Urban, Urban Development. And the purpose of these Section 202 buildings is to provide affordable housing for seniors. Now, Section 202 was the legislation created to fund um, HUD support for building affordable housing yes, correct. properties. Correct. And because they are, because these Section 202 buildings are in public-private partnership with the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the people who live in the building get a rental subsidy. So that kind of is like the jumping off point for the work we do for seniors. But by doing work for seniors, we certainly look over a wide variety of topics, whether that's affordable housing, which we just spoke about, Medicare and Medicaid more, and you know, the healthcare, you know, world, or social security. We sponsor 38 buildings, which provides housing for over 8,000 people. So um, certainly the tax bill, we feel like, because it touches on a few of the you know issues I just you know spoke about, certainly that's something which falls under our purview. Well, by this point, uh, many people are aware that the president recently signed into law major tax reform legislation. Obviously, this bill has many intricacies. I know there are lots of pages in in the bill. Um, however, from a B'nai B'rith perspective. How does this legislation potentially impact Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, so one of the things we certainly try to certainly try to champion at B'nai B'rith is fully funding Medicare and Medicaid, especially as it applies to seniors. And I would say one of the items and one of the parts of the bill I think we find really concerning is the fact that it drives up the deficit over a 10-year period, $1.4 trillion. And why that is concerning is that if we drive up the deficit by $1.4 trillion, it allows people in Congress to say, hey, government spending is getting out of control. We need to cut government spending here. So if we're taking in less because we're giving tax, tax cuts, we need now to spend less. And we're certainly hearing about in the news now how, you know, in January, February, March, Congress might look to do reforms for Medicaid and Medicare, and they're certainly going to look potentially 
for ways to cut government spending. And that's something in terms of the tax tax bill, we were certainly very, very concerned about how increasing the debt and deficit, what would that do six months, six months from now, a year from now. And the concern here is that state governments might not be inclined to um, provide for that shortfall on the federal side. Is that sure. Concern? I think it's a few parts of the concern. I think from a Medicare point of view, which is more of a federal subsidy than it would be a state and federal subsidy, the Medicaid program is a partnership between the federal government and the states. Medicare is more just the federal, the federal government. I think the concern is that if the government is taking in less in taxes, this will allow the members of Congress who traditionally want to cut spending to give them even more of a talking point to say, hey, the deficit's going up. Look at where the deficit is now. Look at where the 10-year projections are going. We need to cut spending. So they're going to look at what the biggest items on the government's bill are every year. And you know, in fairness there, I guess, Medicare and Medicaid certainly do cost a lot for the government. We at B'nai B'rith would certainly argue that the government's getting bang for its buck, that the people who benefit from Medicare and Medicaid, that we are providing incredibly vital services, but people would argue we need to rein in, rein in, in spending, and certainly a tax bill which drives up the deficit and debt would allow the members of Congress to say, hey, we need, we need now to cut from Medicare, Medicaid, SNAP, supplemental security income, in order potentially to to stave off a deficit or increasing debts. But practically speaking, for someone who's qualifies for Medicaid, what what could those cuts involve? So we haven't seen any formal policy as of yet for what the for what the next few months will look like. However, I think the best way to try to figure out what those cuts could look like is to potentially look at what they've done in the past, immediate past. If we look at you know ACA repeal and replace, which they spent a good chunk of the first half, maybe even first three quarters of 2017 trying to do, they wanted to make drastic types of changes, not just to the Medicaid expansion parts of the ACA, but to traditional, the traditional Medicaid program. The way that the Medicaid program works, it's a partnership between the state and federal federal government, where the federal government pays a certain percentage of the share of the expenses, and the state pays a certain percentage of the share of the expenses. What the state pays in expenses varies state to state, depending on how much income that state has. But the short of it is, is that the federal government's obligation isn't capped. So if something was to occur where the state's expenses had to be um, unforeseen gone up, the federal government's expenses would go up to help meet those challenges for the state. And what Congress tried to do during the ACA repeal and replace is do something called block granting. And by what I mean when I say block, block granting, I mean that the state would give a set amount of money to each individual state per year, and if the state was to exceed that, the state would then run into a lot of fiscal, fiscal problems. The federal government gives the block grant. Correct. Correct. So the state would then have to basically find the financial financial resources from somewhere you know from somewhere else, and that can certainly 
be a very challenging task, especially for um, you know states which are certainly financially strapped. Well, since we're on the topic of health care, the tax reform legislation repeals the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. Can you explain how this will impact older Americans, at least at this point in the, in the process? Yeah. So in 2016, 3.3 million older adults between 55 and 64 received insurance through the marketplace. And the CBO has come out with a, a report, and the CBO is the Congressional Budget Office. It's a nonpartisan office. And based on their analysis of the bill, said that because the individual mandate has been repealed in the tax, in the tax reform bill, that health care premiums will go up 10%. And what the individual mandate tries to do, it's the concept that if we have a large pool of people that make up a insurance pool, we need to get the healthy people in the insurance pool to help bring down the prices for everybody else in the pool. So it basically says, hey, your people need to either A, get insurance, or B, need to pay a penalty, enticing people then to go get insurance so they don't have to pay the penalty. Now, according to the AARP, by repealing the individual mandate for people 50 to 64, this would have an average increase in premiums of up to $1,500 in 2019. So it will certainly have a very negative consequence on older uh, Americans in this country. So um, that's, something that's something certainly we'll keep an eye on. The CBO, the CBO also predicted that 4 million people could lose their insurance by 2019, and the number could jump up to 13 million in 2020. So the 55 to 64-year-olds are really kind of in a gap group here because well they don't qualify for Medicare and they rely on Medicaid mm -hmm. and um, that's where the, the problem uh, comes in for, for that group. But for those over 65 or over 67, uh, how you see any Medi impact here? Medicare covers most of that? Yeah, Medicare will cover most of that. Um, I would say, though, that research demonstrates that it's cheaper to treat an individual once they're 50, 55, than it is to wait, let that problem, you know, fester, and then once they turn 65, they're Medicare eligible, then for, then to get that particular issue, whatever it is, treated. So I certainly think it's a bit short-sighted on the government's side to say, hey, we'll let people potentially go uninsured at 55 to 64, but you know, you know, the problems could then get treated once they turn 65. I think that the medical I think that the medical research done in the past clearly demonstrates it's cheaper to to treat a medical condition 55 to 64 than to treat it at 65 once they go on to Medicare. Well, with Congress repealing the individual mandate uh, and with this problem looming uh, for the 55 to 64s, um, are there any legislative fixes available that are being discussed uh, right now to minimize the potential harm to, to that group? Well, the good news is that, yes, there are two bipartisan health care fixes out there in the Senate. But I would certainly caution when I say that they're two good pieces of legislation, and they certainly, um, I think, would bring about helpful change, and we'll get into the specifics in a second. 
But I don't think the positive aspects of the bill will cancel out the negative aspects of repealing the individual mandate. So one of the bills is the Murray-Alexander bill. And that bill does two things. It reinstitutes cost-sharing reductions where by doing that, they would restore payments to insurance companies through 2019, and it would make it it easier for states to opt out of certain ACA provisions. The other bill is the Collins-Nelson bill, and it's bipartisan legislation that would provide $5 billion a year for the next two years to help lower premiums for more costlier patients. Now, these all sound like great things. And I do think that these two particular bills could, in fact, lower the health care costs in this country. But I think the main problem as to why it doesn't, I guess, cancel out repealing the individual mandate is this. The bill only funds these particular measures for, for a two-year time period. The individual, the individual mandate being repealed is permanent. And I think to really bring stability to the health care market, you would have to fund these type of activities, or I guess these type of ideas, A, at a longer time than two years, because the insurance companies know the individual mandate is going to be repealed, but they can only count on the funding for two, for a two-year time, time frame. Congress, as we know, can certainly take a while to get things done. So the fact that even if they pass these bills, which is certainly not a sure short thing, they would have to come back in two years and pass it all over again. That certainly kind of leaves the insurance companies in limbo. So we'll be keeping an eye on Nelson Collins, Marie Alexander, and any other proposals that may come up, uh, particularly in, in that uh, area of the tax reform legislation, which, which clearly is of concern to us. Now, this is a voluminous bill. Uh, there are a lot of things in it. Um, we uh, weren't happy with what we've just discussed, but there are a couple of provisions in here Uh, that did make it to the final cut. Uh, We weren't so sure that that would happen, but it did. Tell us about that. Sure. So one of them is the medical expense deduction. And what the medical expense deduction allows people to do is that it allows people to deduct medical expenses if it reaches a certain expense, a certain percentage, I'm sorry, of their total income. So this is something which at B'nai we take particular interest to because how it impacts the seniors in particular low-income seniors. For, ex- for example, IRS data from 2013 shows that 51% of individuals over 65 who took this deduction have annual income under $50,000. And I think that's obviously critical to the people that we try to advocate for on a day-in and day-out basis. And when the House came out with their bill, initially they did not keep in the medical expense deduction. That's something obviously we were obviously very concerned about. When the Senate came out with their bill and passed it after the House, they kept in the medical expense deduction. So for um, our folks back at you know home, which maybe aren't as you know familiar with you know what goes on in D.C. in particular in Congress, it then goes to something called the Conference Committee. And in Conference Committee, the House and Senate sit down, iron out their differences on two bills which are pretty much identical and then come out with one bill, which the overall Congress will then vote on. So we were certainly very pleased to see the medical expense deduction kept in the final final version, because it really does help so many seniors out there.
Another provision that was debated during the tax reform uh, discussion was regarding low-income housing tax credit. The low-income housing tax credit, known as LIHTC, a lot of alphabet soup, and this one isn't even an acronym, uh, so it, it has to be uh, kind of all uh, spelled out. Uh, tell us why the LIHTC is important and what was the debate all about? Why is it important to us? Sure. So the Low Income Housing Tax Credit is administered by the IRS, and what it basically does, it awards federal tax credits to the private sector to encourage investment in affordable, uh, in affordable housing. And presently, I'd say it probably helps finance around 90% of the affordable housing in this country. And since the tax credit's inception, it helped build 3 million apartments. 3 million apartments since, it's, since it was first created. So from a B'nai B'rith perspective, we have greatly benefited from this tax tax credit. Um, our, our sponsored properties in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and St. Louis, Missouri, both greatly benefited by able to use this tax credit to either A, rehabilitate the building, or B, create a new building. So it's something that we certainly um, were very eager to, to see um, stay and something that we certainly hope to use in the future. Now, as the bill was being debated in Congress, when the House came out with their bill, while they kept in the low-income housing tax credit, they got rid of something called private activity bonds. And what private activity bonds do, private activity bonds are used to help probably about 50% of all low-income housing tax credit construction in the, in the country. So while the House bill kept the actual credit itself, if you were to eliminate private activity bonds, that would severely, severely weaken the low-income housing tax credit. So very similar to the medical expense deduction, which we just talk, talked about, the Senate bill preserved private activity bonds and the low-income housing tax, tax credit. So we were certainly more enthused by what came out of, of the Senate. That, similar to the medical expense deduction, went to conference. And when it came out of the UDL conference, I think you know everybody at B'nai B'rith had a big XL when private activity bonds and the low-income housing tax credit were both protected. So the bonds are the incentive to those who want to invest in, in, in this activity uh, to upgrade and rehabilitate, renovate these, these buildings, which is extremely important. Yep. Uh, not every uh, property is, uh, at least in, in our uh, area, uh, is, is new. Some of them are newer than others, mm -hmm. uh, but um, you can always uh, do your best to, to try to, to bring them uh, into even better condition. So this is a, a real plus for us, and, and that's important. Uh, looking back now on LIHTC, and, and generally speaking, the entire tax reform legislation, uh, tell us about how the the advocacy work actually took place. What, how did that happen, and what were the kinds of things that we were doing to kind of get the word out that certain things were, were very important to us, and more broadly put, of course, to seniors in general? Sure. So one of the things we do, I guess, on a pretty frequent basis at the Center for Senior Services is we make trips up to Capitol Hill to meet with staff from the members of you know, Congress's offices. And for, I'd say for the most part, our trips are really Section 202 focused, talk, talking about what the Section, Section 202 program does, who benefits from Section 202, and the type of 
rental subsidies that people who live in the buildings get. But when Congress was really picking up steam on the tax tax reform bill, as part of our discussions with congressional staff, we certainly talked about all the things we just talked about with the tax reform bill. We talked about our concerns from a Medicare and Medicaid point of view. We talked about the medical expense deduction and certainly talked about the low-income housing tax you know, credit. So we certainly made sure the offices that we, we spoke to were very much aware of where our concerns were and what we certainly would like to see in a final, final product. Also, we certainly issued press releases on this topic and blogs. So we certainly tried to get the word out as much as, as, as possible as to what about the bill we were concerned about and how we certainly think that the bill could be improved. Well, aging and housing, aging and medical care, health care, of course, are two pillars of the B'nai B'rith program. And Evan, really all that you've done on this together with our colleagues, uh, we deeply appreciate it. We know you're going to keep uh, a close eye out on this as it rolls forward. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my colleague Evan Carman, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the Benebrith International Podcast.